0: Hope your Bible, hey, I hope you have your Bible, I hope you'll turn to Ephesians 5, we're continuing our series through the book of Ephesians. Uh, I, I love the study that we're, we're having together, and I especially love our message title for Senior Sunday, because I love Senior Sunday. I love when we get to honor our seniors, we have some great families and great seniors in this church. But I especially love the title today, I Am Sober, all right? And I'm sure you're sober right now, but I want to remind you that uh, on graduation night, I hope you'll still be able to say, "I am sober." When you go to the beach with your friends, you can still say, "I'm sober." When you go off to college, you can still say, "I'm sober." I-, I love that word, because the word has a couple of good meanings to it. I mean, you look on the screen and see two definitions for the word "sober. One is to be not drunk." And and certainly that's something we need to talk about. And second is to have a serious attitude about life, to have a sober attitude about life. This is especially appropriate as we're talking to high school seniors. Latest statistics say that 50% of college students binge drink. They don't just drink, they binge drink. They, They consume an excessive amount of alcohol very, very quickly. And it's very, very dangerous. If you're in a fraternity or sorority, the statistic goes up to 80% are binge drinking. So this challenge here of being sober, not just of drunkenness, but of sobriety in your thought life, is really, really important, not just for our seniors. I'll be sort of picking on you guys today. Sorry that they put you up here. But um, this will apply for all of us. There's a, there's a great contrast in the passage that we're going to read today. It's, it's a crazy contrast. Paul says, either you will be drunk with wine, or you will be filled with the Spirit. What a contrast. I mean, if I'm the Holy Spirit, I'm sort of offended by the contrast, aren't you? That he can compare being drunk with wine and being filled with the Spirit? You see, here's what Paul knows. Paul knows we will all be filled with something. That no one's going to remain empty. Remember that parable we looked at a few weeks ago from Luke chapter 11, where the man cleans the demon out of his house, but puts nothing back in the house. And the demon comes back one day and brings seven demon friends and fills the house. I want you to know that as you go off to school, as you make these decisions about your life, all of us, that none of us will be empty. But you see... The challenge here was very real in Ephesus. Now, we've been reading enough of the book of Ephesians to know that this is a very worldly culture. In the last study, he talked about sexual immorality. And um, This is a culture that would certainly compare to us in morals. I mean, when it came to drinking, they took it to a whole new level. Now, a lot of them drink, but it had become a religious thing. There was a God named Bacchus in Ephesus, and you worship that God by getting drunk and by participating in orgies. We think we're bad. It was pretty crazy. They felt that somehow in a drunken stupor, you would connect to God in a really special way. Some of us are old enough to remember people who believed that about LSD back in the 60s. That if you could somehow get high enough, you would connect to a higher power in a certain way. So that's what's going on in Ephesus. So Paul knows what he's talking about. And he gives a great contrast here. You could be um, drunk with wine or filled with the Spirit. We keep reading, you can live like a fool or you can live wise. You can live thoughtlessly or you can live with understanding. So, there's a great contrast. But there's also a comparison here. Paul says there is a similarity with being drunk with wine or being filled with the Spirit. One similarity is often people find their salvation, their escape, through drunkenness. You just want to get away from life. Life's not been that good. You don't want to think about what's going on. And so, you find your salvation. Many people put it in the bottom of a bottle, and yet we know we also find our salvation through the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. I think the greatest, though, comparison is when we're drunk, we are under the influence of alcohol. We all know that we do things we would not do otherwise. We behave in ways we would not behave unless we were under the influence of alcohol. We give people tickets for being For a DUI, drunk, uh, driving under the influence. On the other hand, the Spirit is similar in that the Spirit impacts our life. You see, Paul's question here is, is your life can be dominated by alcohol or will your life be dominated by the Holy Spirit of God? Here's what the Holy Spirit will do. It will cause you to do things you would not do otherwise. It will change and mold your behavior. It's such an incredible contrast that Paul gives here of the difference in being drunk with wine and filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's our challenge today. What are we going to let dominate our lives? Now let's go to the passage. Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to start reading verse 15. I'm going to read to you today from a newer translation called The Voice. I think it puts it in a way that will get our attention. Paul says here, So be careful how you live, be mindful of your steps what does he say here he says don't run around like idiots as the rest of the world does instead walk as wise make the most of every living and breathing moment because the days are evil understand and be confident in god's will and don't live thoughtlessly don't drink wine excessively the drunken path is a reckless path it leads nowhere instead let god fill you with the Holy Spirit. When you are filled with the Spirit, you are empowered to speak to each other in the soulful words of pious songs, hymns and spiritual songs, to sing and make music with your hearts attuned to God, and to give thanks to God the Father every day through the name of our Lord Jesus, the anointed, for all he has done. And the Spirit makes it possible to submit humbly to one another out of respect for the anointed. You see, guys, Paul understands the times. He understands where people are living. Now, I like the quotation from Sir Thomas More. He was the Lord Chancellor of the church in England when the church went through that transition and Henry VIII decided to divorce his wife and to marry Anne Boleyn he had been friends with Thomas More for all of his life, but Thomas More sided with the Catholic Church against the king. And he was in great trouble. And one of his friends came to him to say, you've got to be careful. The king is not happy with the what you are saying here about him and his new marriage. And Thomas More said this, I know the map of England as well as anybody. I know what's going on around here. I know the stand I'm taking. And what Paul's saying here in this passage is, I know the world that we're living in. And today as we talk about this, do we know the world we're living in? Do we know what our young people are facing and what we are facing in our life? And because of that, Paul jumps into a great list of commands. Paul's laid the theological groundwork of, of salvation by grace, He's identified who we are, and now he says, let me tell you a minute how you ought to live. And I pray for our seniors here. I pray growing up in the families you've grown up, growing up in this church, that a theological framework of grace and the love of God has been laid in your life that gives you security and gives you motivation to live for God. But on top of that, there's clear directions here about the way that you live. He gives, uh, I see, six commands here. Let's go over them real quickly. Number one, be careful how you live. You just got to be careful. Why, why? Because the way you live is pivotal. I especially think about our high school seniors here this morning. The decisions you make these next few years will determine your career path, more than likely to determine your morals, more than likely to determine your mate. It will determine the direction of your life. And, and so Paul would say to you and to I, you need to be careful about that. Now the world's going to tell you what you need to do is you need to go out and try everything. How would you know it's right and wrong unless you try it? Well, think about that just for a moment. Think about the path that's going to lead your life on. Think about where that will leave you. Think about the danger. You, you, you see, God's not trying to rain on your parade. God is trying to keep you from a life of danger. And so that's why he says to us, you need to be careful about these things. Number two, he says, don't live like fools, but live like those who are wise. We all know that we, when we act foolish, when we act thoughtlessly, when we just allow our emotions to control us, we do a lot of dumb stuff, don't we? Most all of us can look back in our life and look at a moment of foolishness where we did things that we're ashamed of or did things that that caused some consequences in our life that we wish had not happened. That's why Paul says, don't be like a fool, be wise. You see, here's here's the question that can change your life. The question is, what is the wise thing to do? You see, um, the Bible does not address every situation you're going to face. It doesn't. The Bible does not specifically say how much is too much or how far is too far. It does not. So, so, so what's, what's the better question? The better question, even beyond what is right and what's wrong, the better question is what is the wise thing to do? Knowing the Word of God, knowing my past, knowing where I'm living, knowing the future, what is the wise thing to do? You see, if you're just trying to make your decisions based on what line is in the sand, you can always find a way to fudge yourself across that line. But if you find a way to ask this pivotal question, what's wise? What's smart? What what are the repercussions of these decisions going to be in the long term? You'll make much better decisions. So understand what the wise thing to do. Number three, make the most of every opportunity. And this is what excites me for you guys. There's no chance in life more exciting than the opportunity you have going off to college. You get to make big choices. You get to have probably more free time than you'll ever have in your life. You have an opportunity to send the direction of your life. You have an opportunity with God that you've never had. Because no matter how much your parents want to make you or tell you, you'll make the choice. It's going to be the greatest opportunity for you to develop your own faith. It's going to be the greatest opportunity for you to develop your own relationship with God because you're going to have choices and you make the most of every opportunity. All of us have those opportunities from day to day. What do we do with it? The the, the word here for make the most for every opportunity is literally to, to buy, to purchase the opportunity. You pay a price for every day you live. It's a day that you live. I'll read this old quotation. Some of you don't get offended by the source, but I like it. This is the, the quotation that Bear Bryant read to himself every morning before he lived his life. When he died, sorry Auburn people, they just, just act like Suge Jordan said it, all right? It, um, it's what was actually found in his coat pocket when he died. Listen to this. This is the beginning of a new day. God has given me this day to use as I will. I can waste it or I can use it for good. What I do today is important, is, it, is important as I am exchanging a day of my life for it. When tomorrow comes, this day will be gone forever. Leave something in its place, I have traded for it. I want it to be gained, not lost, good, not evil, success, not failure. In order that I shall not forget the price I pay for it. Every day, you pay the price of a day. The question is, are you going to use it for an opportunity? Number four command, understand what the Lord wants you to do. Understand what the Lord wants you to do. Here's the good news for all of us. God has a plan for us. God has a place for us. Whether you're staying here to go to school or staying here to go to work or you're going off to school, I guarantee if you'll pray about it and if you'll seek the will of God, he will have a place for you. He'll have a plan for you. Some of their older could say to you today, there's nothing in life more joyful, more full, more meaningful than being where God wants you to be, doing what God wants you to do. How do you figure that out? You spend a lot of time in the Word of God. I pray a foundation of knowledge has been laid in your life and that you will seek His Word and that you will seek His face and that you will seek His will. I challenge you when you're facing situations and decisions, before you're walking in that classroom, before you're walking in that party, before you're walking in that dorm room, ask God what does He want? Lord, if you could have your way in this place, what would you do and what would you do through me? And then number five, back to our contrast, is don't be drunk because that will ruin your life. Let me ask the audience here a question. How many of you have ever seen someone's life ruined by alcohol? We've seen it. How many college students have we read about in the paper this year who have lost their life because either they or their friends were driving drunk? It's amazing. Paul says this is something that you need to be careful about. Don't be drunk because it could ruin your life. Now, I've got to be honest with you on this subject. What does the Bible teach about alcohol? I grew up with people that said, if you drink one drop of alcohol, you've sinned. We even made silly arguments like, if you drink one drop, you're one drop drunk. Anybody ever heard that? Okay. You're even laughing, all right? Although the it seems to me we have switched to a culture, we now understand that the Bible does not condemn every use of alcohol. Jesus turned water into wine. Here he says, don't get drunk with wine. And so, how do we handle this? What, what, what scares me is because we don't draw a firm, firm line. I'd love to tell you, it is absolutely sinful and you will go to hell if you touch alcohol. That'd make me feel more comfortable. But, but I wouldn't be true to really what Scripture teaches. So this is an area where that word comes back that we mentioned earlier. That's so important. It's wisdom. It's wisdom. Will you use wisdom about this? You see, the statistic I gave you earlier should say, earlier, should put sort of a red flag up there. If 50% of college students are binge drinking, how safe is it for me to even play with it? I mean, you're going to a culture where alcohol is elevated to an incredible level. Will you be wise about it? Will you really seek God's will about what you should do and what you shouldn't do? All of us know people who turn out to be alcoholics. Tell me this. Anybody ever choose that? Anybody ever say, you know, I really want my life to be dominated by alcohol? That's the direction I want to go? No. So I also need to be careful about this topic. Adults, when you start having to have a drink every night before you go to bed... That ought to be a red flag. When you turn what I'm teaching you here today into an excuse of freedom that says, you know what, okay, the Bible doesn't teach uh, that every drop is sinful. Well, then I can do anything I want to. You've not understand the Bible. It bothers me, the Christians I see, who not only drink excessively, but actually encourage other people to drink excessively. In a church like we have, where we have lots of people that are overcoming addiction issues, it is foolish for you to throw a party and to serve alcohol with people like that being there. It's just foolish. This is is a tough subject. And again, I can't draw you a a straight black and white line. I can tell you something even more important. You love the Lord enough that you're going to be wise about it. That will change what you do. So, don't be drunk with wine. Number six is be filled with the Spirit. That's a command. Be filled with the Spirit. You say, well, buddy, that's that's sort of weird. I thought every Christian already had the Holy Spirit. You do. Well, what does it mean then to be filled with the Spirit? I don't think this is a... Uh, Like some Pentecostals would teach, this is a a second step of salvation, that you're saved and then later you receive the Holy Spirit. That's not what he's saying here. Paul is adamant in Romans chapter 8 that everybody who's a follower of Jesus has the Holy Spirit. I don't think he's talking about here the baptism of the Holy Spirit. No one was ever commanded to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. That's something God just did when he wanted to. This is something that we have a choice about that we can ask about. Let me make this comparison. In Acts, the book of Acts, when Ananias and Sapphira get in so much trouble with with God about lying about their contribution, the Bible says they were filled with Satan. What's that mean? Their life was dominated by Satan, not dominated by God. And that's what we're talking about here. You've got forces at work around you and within you. The question is, what will you cooperate to dominate in your life? The picture here, being filled with the Spirit, would not be like taking a cup and, and pouring the Holy Spirit in it. Here would be the picture I'd give you, being filled with the Holy Spirit. You already have the Holy Spirit. The winds of the Holy Spirit are already blowing in your life. The picture I'd give you for the Holy Spirit here is of a cell. And what he's saying is, you need to set your cell... In such a way and direct it so that you are driven and moved and molded by the wind of the Holy Spirit. What's he saying? You you, you live your life in such a way that the Holy Spirit has a chance to work. You ask for the Holy Spirit. You cooperate with the Holy Spirit. Colossians chapter 3, a parallel passage to this, instead of saying be filled with the Spirit, he says you need to be filled with God's Word. Let me say this to you. If you don't cooperate with God's Word, His written revelation of what's right and wrong, then there's no room for the Holy Spirit to work in your life. If you're going to deny something he said in the Bible as being true, the Spirit's not going to be at work. So what do you do? You begin to cooperate with the work of the Spirit. You set yourselves so the Spirit can ignite you and can move you. And I really think all the things he's been saying so far are the way we do that. We live carefully. We live wisely. We seek the will of God. We make the most of every opportunity. Uh, Understand this about the Holy Spirit's work in your life it is not passive it is active you don't just passively wait back here and go well I hope the Holy Spirit moves you know he's the Holy Spirit he can do what he wants to do Paul says you got something to do with it you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit just like you could go out and be filled with alcohol and it would determine your actions Paul says I want to challenge you to be filled with the Holy Spirit and let it determine your actions it's a beautiful thought so we've seen the, the contrast we've seen the commands Paul's getting right on with it, and now let's think about the consequences. What does a life filled with the Spirit look like? Interesting here, Paul gives three words to describe what it looks like to be full of the Holy Spirit. One thing I I notice here is he's not mentioning tongue-speaking and charismatic gifts. I'm not trying to take a stand, but that's, that's not what he says. Some people would say the only evidence of the Holy Spirit is if you did these miraculous things. Paul makes it much more subtle. He says, First of all, you sing. When you've got the Holy Spirit, it shows up in that your life is so full of joy, you are just wanting to sing. You sing psalms, that's those Old Testament songs. You sing hymns which are praise songs to God. You sing spiritual songs, which would just be more ordinary songs about everyday life and how you live for God. Ephesians five nineteen is a powerful verse that says when you're full of the Holy Spirit the result in your life is that you sing you're so full of joy I don't think he's just talking about here in this assembly I think he's talking about in our everyday life if I could be real blunt here and go a little sidelight just for a second Ephesians five nineteen, I don't think has anything to do with whether we sing a cappella or instrumentally that's not what Paul was thinking here when he wrote these verses Now, if you're new with us, you understand in Churches of Christ, we have a tradition of singing a cappella. That means without instruments. That means we sing with our voices. We cherish that tradition. It's a beautiful thing that says the instrument that we're going to use to praise God is our voices. I'm not downgrading that. I'm just saying let's not use this as a proof text to prove something it doesn't prove. All right? A lot of you asked some questions a few weeks ago when we had the Good Friday service where there were instruments used. We've been doing that, if I can be frank with you, for 15 years. Our commitment and our desire is that our Sunday morning assemblies will remain a cappella. Everybody in our leadership agrees on that. We love that. We think there's good historical precedence for that, and we think it's a beautiful thing. But after saying this is a matter of right and wrong and heaven and hell, we don't believe that either. So let's, um, let's just sing. What I love about a cappella worship, guys, is… It's a failure if we don't sing. So I challenge you. One of the the results of the Holy Spirit being in your life is that you just begin to sing here and in other places. The second result is thanksgiving. You see good and you celebrate it. You too many of us. We see negative in everything around us. Anything we go to, we nitpick. Anything we're about, we criticize. And I'm telling you, that's no way to live life. You will go to college and you'll make out of it what you decide to make out of it. You can go there and you can critique everything that happens in your dorm, everything that happens in the cafeteria, everything that happens in your classroom, or you can go and you can see the good that God is doing and you can accentuate that. People that are filled with the Holy Spirit are positive, thankful people. We know what God has done in our life. We know if the worst were to come, we're in good shape. It's a great key to the Christian life is thanksgiving. And then number three, here's another consequence of the filling of the Holy Spirit, is submission. The Spirit makes it possible to to submit humbly to one another. Isn't that interesting? One of the works of the Holy Spirit is to make me not be so concerned about me and my agenda as much as I am concerned about humbly serving other people. You see, the Holy Spirit teaches me to reject self centeredness and to begin to live centered around other people. So so much that at times when we both want something to happen, I will just submit to the other person. I don't always have to have my way. Submission is something we don't talk a lot about, it's something greatly missing in our culture. We don't submit to authorities, we don't submit to the people around us, and it does us great damage. Because there are always people that know more than us. That if we'd listen to, our life would be better. That's why I encourage you, if you're going off to school, find a good church. Don't just go float around to every church in town. You have lots of choices. Go find a good church, and put yourself in submission under the leadership of that church. You, you see, God has set it up for every one of us to be under people who have spiritual authority in our life. We don't talk about this enough. We are too quick to criticize our leaders. We are too quick to want our own way. Every one of us should have people in our life that have spiritual authority over our lives that we, when they're giving us biblical counsel and advice, that we submit to. That's a protection in our life. So, what are the consequences of being filled with the Holy Spirit? You like to sing a lot, your heart is full of thanksgiving, And you love people enough to even submit when you don't want things to go their way. You'd rather go your way. So, let's close this sermon out with a question here and a statement. Can I ask you today, are you sober? Now that way, the question probably needs to be asked in two ways. With definition number one about drunkenness. I know speaking to an audience this big. There are people in here that your life is being dominated by alcohol, by illegal drugs, or by what's the number one abuse in America today, prescription drug abuse. I guarantee I'm talking to some of you. And God would say to you, don't live your life that way please don't start your life out that way. As the Bible says, it will do nothing but lead to ruin. It may feel awesome in the moment, but it will destroy your life. All you've got to do is look around in your families, and I guarantee you, you've got some examples. And there may be some of us today that are not sober in the sense that we are abusing alcohol, drugs, and prescription drugs in our life. There are adults in this audience today. You're doing it. You're keeping it hidden. You come to church and you like, look like everybody else. But let me tell you, you need to find some freedom from that. God doesn't want you to be drunk with wine. God wants you to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He says there's a better ecstasy and high of being filled with the Holy Spirit any day than being drunk with wine. Being drunk with wine can be something to give you some temporary satisfaction, but it will leave you messed up. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is something that will give you eternal satisfaction and will leave you blessed. Or maybe... The way we need to ask the question, are you sober? Is are you serious about your faith? That's what you're gonna find out these next few months. Are you serious about your faith? Listen to me. Here's the best statistics we can find. Fifty percent of you guys will walk away from your faith while you're in high school. If I were just to count down, I know we you know, one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two. And if we decide number two, sorry, some of you guys. Are gonna fall away. That's that's the statistic. That's what we're looking at guys. Now. Now listen to this though That's not what you're wanting to happen. I know But if you're not sober if you're not serious-minded about your life, you say well, you know, buddy I'm just gonna go do it comes natural I mean, I don't have to think this thing through so much, man. I'm going off to college. Give me give me some freedom I'd love to say that I'd love to agree with you there, but the problem is it's foolish The problem is, if you go and every one of us in this room does what comes naturally to us, we will absolutely go in the wrong direction. The natural man is a sinful man. The natural man will gravitate toward selfishness and toward foolish behavior that could destroy your life. So I'm not telling you to just go do what feels good, I'm asking you to be sober, to be serious. I wonder with many of us adults here this morning, are we really being sober about our life? When you look at the choices we're making as to whether to put God first or something else first in our life, how sober minded are we? How serious are we about that? Let me leave you with this one quotation. It's one of my favorite from Andy Stanley. We looked at it a few years ago. Direction, not intention, determines destination. Say that out loud with me. Direction, not intention, determines destination. What's he what, what saying there? It's not just what you intend to do. 80% of you, according to the studies, want to keep your faith. Only 20% of you thinking, man, I'm getting out of here and rejecting God. 80% desire to, only 50% will. So it's not enough just to have the intention. You've got to set a direction. You know what? You know what? You know what studies say the way you live in college will be determined by what you do and who you hang out with. Catch this: the first two weeks, you will make the most important decisions in the first two weeks. Where you go, who you hang out with, will probably determine what happens the rest of those four. Five, six years, how long it takes you to graduate, all right? It's going to make that decision. And so I'm, I'm telling you, what you've got to do, what I've got to do, is we have to set a direction in our life. We've seen the contrasts, we've seen the commandments, we've seen the consequences, and now we close out here this morning with a choice. Are you going to make a choice for your life to go in the right direction? And these choices can be wide-ranging. I asked the adults here this morning, what's your choice? What direction are you setting your life? You may have every good intention in the world that one day I'm going to get right with God, one day I'm going to get fired up for God, one day I'm going to get committed to God, one day I'm going to put God first, but just not right now. Let me, let me tell you, let me give you another quotation. This is an old quotation, but a good quotation. The road to hell is paved with what? Good intentions. So this morning, I'm not asking you just to give us some good intentions. I'm asking you to strike out in a new direction. I'm challenging you, the people this church loves so much, to make sure as you walk away from here that you make the choice to live your life in a direction that's pleasing to God and that's going to bless you. You see, listen guys, the bottom line here is do you trust God? If you trust God, that God's really got your best interest at heart, and really wants to bless you and use you and give you abundance in your life, then, then you'll make the—if you don't trust God, then we've got another problem. So I ask us all, are you willing to trust God enough to choose? Here, here's what's all over this passage. All over this passage. You've got a choice you got a choice whether you give yourself the wine or give yourself the Holy Spirit. you got a choice whether you live like a fool or you live like somebody wise. you got a choice whether you live thoughtlessly or you live soberly. And you're going to be making these choices right now. You could grow up in the same family, grow up in the same church, and make different choices. I've got four brothers we all grew up in the same family going to the same church one of my brothers today that I love dearly is agnostic I wish you'd pray for him but about this point in life we all started making choices and he's one of the best people I know that when he came to a conflict between his morals and between God, he chose to go in a different direction. And I tell you, you're at a pivotal moment. And you've got the greatest opportunity of your life to make the right choices. Because this is when it happens. Some of us adults in here, you've made bad choices, you've gone in the wrong directions. I can tell you this morning, you can turn that around. You can turn it around right now. We're about to pray, and if you need our prayers today to go in the right direction, if the first step in the right direction is down this aisle for you this morning, if you're ready to follow Jesus, if you're sick of giving yourself to wine and you want to give yourself to the Spirit, then why don't you make that choice right now while we stand together and sing.